This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Vanessa Raba, and I'm an assistant professor of adult and pediatric infectious diseases at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. For those of you not yet familiar with NETEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across healthcare systems in the U.S. with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by OSPER, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. On today's episode, we have a special guest, Dr. Natalie Manley, to talk about resilience in long-term care settings. Dr. Manley is an assistant professor in the Division of Geriatrics, Gerontology, and Palliative Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Her clinical work focuses on nursing home care and hospice, and she has certifications in medical direction through both the American Board of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, as well as the Hospice Medical Director Certification Board. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we get started on today's episode on resilience in long-term care settings, our listeners should know that this episode is part of a transmission-interrupted series on long-term care. If you're a new listener to the podcast, you may want to catch up with some of our previous episodes, such as NETEC and the Long-Term Care Continuum and Personal Protective Equipment in Long-Term Care, before listening to this podcast. Natalie, to get things started, can you provide our listeners with a brief overview of what we mean when we refer to long-term care? Yes, absolutely. First, though, I'd like to start just by thanking all of you at NETEC for all of the important work that you are doing in public health and all the various arenas within, and especially for taking interest in long-term care, a world that is very near and dear to me. And I did listen to both of those previous episodes that you did in the long-term care continuum, and they were really good. So I recommend them to others as well. So long-term care, it's an incredibly complex and diverse world. It encompasses a broad spectrum of care. So oftentimes people think about nursing home care, but long-term care also encompasses services, any services that help a person to stay in their home. So home health, paid caregiving services, adult day services, independent living facilities, assisted living facilities, and then can also include post-acute rehab, which is usually more of a short-term extension of a hospital stay. And long-term acute care hospitals also fit within the realm of long-term care, although those are more medical environments than the other ones I list. I like to make note that a good portion of dementia care homes are technically assisted living facilities, and that's important because they're under different regulations than nursing homes. Nursing homes are under federal regulations and assisted livings are under state regulations. It's been said that there's only one thing more highly regulated than nursing homes in the United States, and that is nuclear energy. So just to give a sense of kind of already, even before the pandemic, how many regulations that had to be observed in the nursing home. So there's a really great society that I love and look to a lot called the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. And they say that the vision for the society is to have a world in which all post-acute and long-term care residents and patients have the highest quality, compassionate care for optimum health, function, and quality of life. And so I think that's a good description of what we aim for. 
I think that's a great description. And I'm reassured that there's a, that many regulations out there that it's only second to nuclear energy. It sounds like it's a highly regulated environment, but still one where we're hearing about some challenges. Can you tell us a little bit about the environment in long-term care settings? What's it like? Yes. So the most important point that I want to make today is that although to us, long-term care is a healthcare environment, to the people that we're serving, the long-term care environment is their home. So it's different than managing a clinic or a hospital because those of us working in long-term care also have a duty to help people within their long-term home environment to live the best possible quality of life with however much time they have left. So sometimes people will be in a long-term care setting for only just a few days to a few weeks. And for some people, the long-term care setting is where they'll be living for months to years. So just to play out how it's slightly different than a healthcare uh, setting, completely separate from infectious disease. But I recently cared for a short-term rehab patient whose daughter was horrified to find out that hot dogs were on the menu. And so I explained to her, well, for some people, this is their home and people like to eat hot dogs. And it might have even gone to the resident council. So in the nursing home setting, there's a resident council. So there's one of the residents is president and one of the residents is secretary. And so they might have said, we want hot dogs in the menu. And then that's part of it. And so it was like a light bulb went off to her when I explained that to her. And then all of a sudden she was like, oh, okay, I understand why hot dogs would be okay. So in a similar way, that expectation of maintaining a home environment while also recognizing that it is a healthcare environment is what makes transmission avoidance especially complex. To further describe the environment, the population of people who's needing nursing home care and long-term care are generally speaking medically complex, frail. And so our goal is to restore and maintain their highest possible level of functioning to preserve a person's autonomy, maximize their quality of life, stabilize and delay progression of their chronic conditions, prevent and manage their acute illnesses and provide comfort and dignity for the dying. Additionally, the people who work in long-term care are often an important source of social support and oftentimes they become like family to each other. Approximately 50% of people who reside in a nursing home are 85 years or older. They live with more disability than people living at home in general, with more than 80% of nursing home residents needing help with at least three activities of daily living. So help with bathing, help with dressing, help with getting up out of the chair, help with toileting, things like that. Of those residents who are able to walk, about 90% of them need to have assistance or supervision. And this came up a lot in my mind during the pandemic when we were having people stay in their rooms to help make sure that they were keeping socially distanced because a lot of times the way we would help prevent falls is have people spend time out in the main area so that we could keep an eye on them. And so it was harder to do when they were in their rooms and making sure that they were getting up safely on their own to prevent falls. I'm sure harder to keep their strength up also when you can't have them all in the same room and you have that many people who need that individual one-on-one assistance. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that it made it hard in terms of just helping people maintain their strength so that if they did get sick that, you know, they had some reserve, you know, some physical strength and reserve. Some other statistics for you. Over 50% of residents have incontinence. And over a third have difficulty with seeing or hearing. So that kind of made it difficult with masks and sometimes I think became a temptation and still does becomes a temptation for staff members to want to pull down their masks so they can let people read their lips. And so that 
takes kind of recurring education to staff members and family members about, no, you still have to wear your mask. And here's some other ways that you can try to communicate for someone who can't hear. Between 50 to 70% of residents have dementia, and at least a third of nursing home residents have problematic behaviors. So being physically or verbally abusive, resisting cares, wandering, not really understanding why we're doing what we're doing. And depression is also higher in nursing home residents than in the community. And that was before the pandemic. Other risk factors for admission to a nursing home include low income, low social activity, low social support, functional or mental difficulties, and the geriatric syndromes we've talked about. So frequent falls, pressure sores, incontinence. So, you know, and there's plenty of people in the nursing home, lots and lots of people in the nursing home and long-term care world who have family members who are super, super attentive and loving and are very focused on the best possible care. So it's not like people are in the long-term care environment or all without loving support. It's just a matter of how much physical presence a person needs and support they need. All those statistics I just rattled off came from the healthandaging.org webpage that they have a page on nursing home care. So that's where I pulled all of that from if you want to look at that. So if you're looking for that website, you can find it in today's show notes or you can find it on our website at netech.org. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of those challenges are that the long-term care workers are facing in today's world? Yes. I like to point out how thankful I am for all the nurse assistants and the people who provide the day-to-day hands-on assistance for the people who are living in long-term care. This includes helping individuals transfer out of their beds, help with toileting or changing their briefs, getting dressed in the morning, putting on their compression stockings, which if you've ever had to try to put on compression stockings, it's a lot of work and probably takes a good five minutes if I try to do it. They also help with brushing teeth, managing dentures, putting in hearing aids, getting people out to breakfast. And then some people need help with eating. And and then after that, then helping them get back to whatever meaningful activities are important to people between meals. And then now it's time to go back out and get toileted again and go to lunch and, and maybe change clothes if they got their clothes dirty during one of the meals. And so it kind of just paints a picture of how intensely intimate a lot of the care is and requires a lot of very close up care. Throw into that then, sometimes our staff members are at risk of getting hit and punched and kicked because people don't, you know, understand why are they, why are they doing what they're doing to try to help me. And so it's not infrequent that I'll have a staff member say, you know, so-and-so punched the nurse yesterday and what are you going to do about it, Dr. Manley? So there's, there's a lot of extra effort in some of those cares. So then you play into that low wages and the staff turnover. And when there's staff turnover, then that means all that important education and training that you did. Now you got to do it all over again with your new staff members. So training and retraining and training again and difficulty with maintaining enough staff, which is obviously a problem throughout all of healthcare right now. And, and then managing all those strict regulatory policies. And then recently, just the kind of moral injury of, of having this kind of palpable feeling of people just generally having a lot of disdain for the long-term care environment. And maybe sometimes having it be a little bit demonized makes it Makes it just extra hard, I think, to keep going. But on, on the flip side, there's so many people who just, I've been so in awe, you know, as the medical director, I go in a, once or twice a week and I think of all of those, all the people who come day after day after day, and I'm just so thankful to them. 
Well, it takes a lot of commitment because it sounds like a lot of work, even in the best of times, just to do all of that and then to do all of that with people who might not be able to hear well, might not be seeing well, might not be able to walk on their own and might not be able to understand what's going on. You throw a pandemic on there and it's going to make it a lot more challenging because that's a lot of work and even in the best of times. And I think if we had to regulate nuclear energy in those settings, we'd be having a lot more problems as well. <laughs> that's fair enough. <laughs> So throwing COVID-19 into this mix of what's already a really challenging situation, I'm sure it probably didn't make a lot of things better, probably made a lot of things worse. But can you tell us a little bit about maybe what, if anything, got better and what things maybe were even more challenging during COVID? Yeah. Yeah, there were plenty of opportunities for us to kind of develop stronger team relationships. And, you know, I think kind of that sense of being in it together and so I think there was benefit in there and and then just kind of getting a chance to see some of the other parts of the community that that some of them were already being helpful to the nursing home or long-term care environment already, but seeing them kind of step in even more. So the local churches would come around and bring snacks or treats or the, you know, they'd be prepackaged and, and you know, not infection uh, control problems, but, you know, bring special treats for people that live there and people who work there. I remember the beginning of the pandemic, some of the staff members, before they would come into work, I'm pretty sure it was staff members, they would do sidewalk chalk on the outside of the building. And it was just, it made it more fun and kind of more uplifting. So seeing how different people in the community came to help. People who would go around with their dogs uh, around the outside of the building and have their dog jump up and look through the window. And that was fun. So seeing how a community can come together, you know, it's really brought to light there are people inside of those buildings that you drive by. And so I think the news highlighting some of those things, I think, has brought them more to the front of mind. But yeah, in regards to difficulties, you know, a lot of the difficulties I mentioned, those were all present before the pandemic, and it kind of just made it extra hard in some ways. Some things that kind of come to mind, and we talked about some of these things before, but one thing that's important in older adults, we know is for maintaining weight and strength is we know that people eat better if they're in a social environment. So that was something that became a little bit more difficult to figure out how to help people maintain their oral intake if they're eating alone in their rooms as opposed to being in the dining room. And thank God, you know, things are getting better now. And so they're able to eat in the dining room again. But every once in a while, if there's, you know, been an exposure, then we have to go back to being in the rooms and that, that's always a little bit extra difficult. So we've had to deal with some problems with weight loss. We know with prevention of cognition declines and physical functional strength declines that people have to remain socially engaged and physically active. So that took a hit. So they develop problems with weakness and depression and loneliness and cognitive decline beyond what we had been seeing before. Even pressure ulcers became more of an issue, I felt like. So even though technically all of those safety measures that we were doing are obviously the right thing to do, it sometimes it felt like internally it felt wrong to not be letting people go out with their families and see them. And, and especially when you don't know how much time they have left. So it led to a lot of like internal conflict and, and having to have those conversations with family members. One thing that I always say is it's hard to measure. There's no lab test for loneliness. So it's hard to measure how many people passed away due to the complications of loneliness and isolation. And there are data to say that people 
are at increased risk of mortality if they're isolated and lonely. So it's just, it's too hard to measure. Yeah, I think that was a challenge for everybody during the pandemic. But then when you add on this dependency of needing somebody to help get you to these situations where you can be social, it just makes that a whole nother level. And it really sounds like, especially for the people who work there, like these are people they're seeing day in and day out. So we've heard a lot about burnout in a hospital setting and loneliness for healthcare workers in the acute hospital who are taking care of sick patients. But those are not patients that they have these longstanding relationships like you do in a long-term care setting. So how is that the same or different as, as people are going through that and going through these experiences as a healthcare worker? Are they seeing the same type of burnouts or is that maybe protective to know more about the people or does that even make it harder? Ah, that's a good question. I would say a little bit of both. It certainly does make you want to keep coming back in the sense of you might have those thoughts of, gosh, like, why am I even doing this? But then you think, well, I love these residents and I don't want to leave them. And so I think there's something to be said for that. But then it also makes it hard because you grow attached to people. And I've seen it, especially with, again, with the CNAs and and the nursing staff who develop these very close day in and day out relationships with the people who live there. And so then when the person potentially passes away, it can be very difficult. And one thing that's really um, been helpful is using hospice as another resource of support. And hospice has bereavement services that they can offer to family. But one thing that can be asked of is for the bereavement person through hospice to maybe offer some support to the staff members at the facility as well. So that is something that could be asked for. And I found that to be helpful. I'm sure that even in normal circumstances, it's hard to lose somebody you care for. But then to have all of this compounded with a lot of people getting sick and a lot of people, unfortunately, dying in nursing home settings at the same time, it's a lot to cope with. Yep, exactly. And yeah, and then you have to think about the potential guilt that they feel if, you know, geez, was I the one who brought it in or, you know. Or the guilt of, gosh, I have this maybe sniffle and do I go to work and potentially risk it or do I not go to work and leave all of my colleagues in a bind of who's going to work because I'm, I don't know if the sniffle is, is COVID or not COVID. And so those kinds of things, I think, add extra difficulty. And were there, were there new challenges you guys hadn't experienced before? Oh, my goodness. You brought to mind something that maybe is potentially irrelevant, but it kind of, and it's, it's pushing me back a couple of years, but at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was on the same page and like, nope, nobody's coming into the buildings except for the people who work there. I, I spent a lot of time being concerned about what are we going to do to keep people's spirits up? And one thing that I noticed is there's nobody around to fill the bird feeders around the building anymore. And so I took it upon myself and I made it be, I would, I would have my students just go walk around the building and fill the bird feeders. Cause I was like, gosh, if they're not going to have their visitors, we at least got to make sure that the birds keep coming. (laughs) Well, sometimes it's just those little bits of quality of life, that little bit of connection to nature or just something when things are so abnormal, that little bit of normalcy that just gets you through the day. Yep, exactly. So I guess one good thing is things have gotten better to the point that I don't need to make sure that I go fill the bird feeders before I leave the facility for the day. Because, you know, it was too much to ask. The staff had way too much on their plates. I I wasn't going to ask them to do that. (laughs) I took it upon myself. But that kind of also brings to mind just how 
wonderful it is to see the administrative staff come into the floor and help out and everybody helps each other out where they can. And I think that has been really helpful as well. I think that's that's a really important thing for resilience and that helped get a lot of people through it. I know in our setting that definitely did because New York got hit very hard early on. But having that people who are banding together, those people who are going that extra mile and bringing their dogs outside so people can see them. For us or for me personally, it was working in the vaccine center and having all these people who wanted to be part of the COVID-19 vaccine trials because they wanted to do it for the person that they loved, for their family, for their coworker, for their friend. And they just wanted some way to help. And even if it's not participating in the clinical trial and it's bringing in those snacks and bringing in that extra little bit of cheer during the day, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Part of resiliency is also having like a sense of purpose and like the reason why behind what you're doing. And so I think there's so much value in, in what was happening there, right, is that people had this kind of sense of togetherness and purpose for what we were doing. Yeah, it makes me think of the, this might be corny, but it makes me think of the Mr. Rogers quote of look for the people who are helping that we give to kids in terms of dealing with situations. But it is so true and it applies to even when you're working in these types of stressful settings of just those little things of people going out of their way to say or to show like you're appreciated. It makes a huge difference in just keeping you going even when you've got that mission that's driving you. It's really true. And since you bring up Mr. Rogers, I'm going to bring up my other thing that I will commonly try to fit in, which is I watched Frozen 2 at the beginning of the pandemic. And there's a part in Frozen 2 where Anna has had a very horrible thing happen and she's feeling super sad and distraught. And she sings this beautiful song about just doing the next right thing, you know, like, I don't know how I'm going to keep going. But what I know I can do is just do the next right thing. And that I carried with me a lot is, you know, sometimes the next right thing is is just getting in your car and driving to work. Or maybe the next right thing is just getting up and eating breakfast. But, you know, kind of just thinking of things one step at a time, I think, helped me. Yeah. And I think that's really important and, and of just the taking care of what is that thing that needs to happen next. And if you can't look or you can't control what happens beyond that, is that what do I need to do for myself? Or is that what do I need to do for my patient? Do I need to then just help them get to the bathroom or help them get to the table, help them eat their next meal? What is that next right thing to do? Yeah. And then even if it's a challenging day, you can just get through it step by step. Exactly. Yep. Which is a nice plug for one of the things that we were going to talk about in regards to just how do we manage resilience in, in the workplace environment and especially long-term care is listening to podcasts like these and, and, you know, there's all these great resources out there. I'm not an expert in resilience, but I've definitely had to consume a lot more information and look up information about resilience just to make it through at times, so... Well, and I think it's it's not just us as healthcare workers, it's the patients and it's their families also, because in your long-term care facility, as you mentioned, there's oftentimes these really dedicated families who are doing a lot of the care lifting, a lot of the heavy lifting to help care for their, their loved ones. And 
how do we help them become more resilient and recognize those challenges that they're facing too, I think is a hard thing for us to take that step back and to put that in the context of doing the right thing overall, but trying to make it as much the right thing for as many people as possible. Yeah, exactly. And it does. It takes a lot of conversation. So I think leaning on each other and, you know, sometimes maybe if I don't have time to have that important conversation with a family member right now, maybe there's somebody who can help me out and and maybe start certain conversations. And so, yeah, I think it just keeps coming down to supporting each other and doing everything we do with love in our hearts. It sounds corny, but I think it's really true. You made me think of a couple of my residents that I really viewed as resilient people during the pandemic and how I really looked to them as kind of people to who just show me they just you just keep on going. And some of the residents that we get to know, they lived pretty hard lives and they've made it through lots of storms in their life. And this was just yet another storm to get through. And so just watching them kind of quietly just tolerate one storm after another, it was it was uplifting to watch or maybe instructive to watch how they handled things. So I'm going to take it a step away from that personal level and just say as a system, because you you mentioned how highly regulated nursing home care is, what are the things that we can do to help build a better resilient system for nursing homes and for other long-term care facilities? And what are things that we should be trying to avoid? That is a great question. Okay, so I guess start one of my common answers to this is there's some really great resources. So I would say reach out to your resources and have good team dynamics. There's a really great team training program called Team Steps through AHRQ. And I think that's a really great program. There's other team training programs as well. So the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care, they have some great resources under the title Healing Together. And one of the resources that they have is a stress first aid toolkit for long-term care. It was put together by Ithaca College and University of Rochester. And that is, I think, a really great resource that can be used for education and training on a systemic level. Other resources that help with educating about trauma-informed care, I think, are really valuable and important. I hadn't really learned much about trauma-informed care until just the last year or two. And there's a lot of valuable resources about just how we react to each other during times like when we're ramping up in in terms of we know some sort of stressor is coming and then how we manage and and work together during that time of acute stressor and then how we manage and work together in in the after events. And so I say mostly it's about reaching out to those evidence-based formats that have been created and and instituting them on a system-wide level. Another important system level support is access for resources that are targeted towards employees like counseling programs and wellness programs and healthcare professionals. Those can be really helpful. And sometimes people just need to reach out to their own doctor. Other things to consider is just where are you at on your Maslow's hierarchy or needs? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you need to take a break and get a drink? Is there something that you need to feel safe in your environment? Maybe that's a certain PPE that you need to make sure that you're asking for. Well, thank you for those references. We will also have those in the show notes from today, as well as on the NETAC website. And we're hearing some policy changes that are coming about during COVID-19. One of the ones that I think has made a lot of headlines is one about kind of a right to visit 
the people in a long-term care facility, no matter what is going on from a health standpoint. And I think this touches on a lot of the things you've mentioned in terms of problems with that loneliness and having that social support and the family members who are really involved, but also creates some challenges from an infection control standpoint, especially, fingers crossed it doesn't happen, but if we face a pandemic even worse than COVID at some time in the future. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this impacting a long-term care facility if we have another wave of COVID-19 or if we have a future pandemic? Yeah, we've kind of had to go back and forth on this over the last couple of years, and it did definitely bring in a lot of fear and concern at the beginning when we started to open the doors again of, well, how are we going to do this and how are we going to make this safe? But then at the same time, recognizing how super duper important it is for people to just be with the people that they love. And I think really that the benefits of getting to visit outweigh the risks, but it definitely does take a lot of diligence in terms of making it be a safe situation. And it takes a lot of just regular, consistent checking in and educating and re-educating. And, and unfortunately, at first there was, there was a need to make sure that people were able to be supervised which is a good thing because then you could supervise and make sure that the masks were being worn appropriately and you could tell them to put their mask on. But then it felt a little bit like being in, like on a prison ward where you have to be supervised for all of your conversations. So it's, it's kind of just like a dual, like balancing the weight of each important thing. But I think overall, it's really important to be able to let people be together again. Life doesn't stop just because a pandemic starts. And as you mentioned, these are people's homes. These are their lives. And balancing out that safety while still letting people live their lives is, I'm sure, a huge challenge. And one that doesn't have a straightforward answer that we'll just have to adapt as the situations come up. Yeah. And I want to give a big thank you to Nebraska's ICAP, their Infection Control Assessment Program. They helped so much with a million questions and we're really there to support and educate at a system level through the, the Nursing Home Echo Project, which was a big project to educate the people involved in long-term care. And I think that was so important during some of the most difficult times. And, and still, they're continuing to do education and helping us roll out how are we going to do things safely. Well, I think we've talked about a lot of different topics today. Is there anything else about kind of looking at the future of long-term care facilities and what's come up during COVID-19 and staying resilient that you feel like we should mention before we end today's show? Yeah, I think one thing that I would love to see come from this and I think is happening already is just reimagining how long-term care is provided and done and reaching across different types of career paths that maybe don't normally get thought of in terms of long-term care, but, you know, engineers and, and architects and even textiles, they have, you know, there's, there's a person I've known um, through UNL who is a fashion person, but she has particular interest in helping older adults with particular fashion needs and never crossed my mind, but yeah, we need stuff like that. Maybe we need special outfits for nurses who are going to be taking care of people that might be hitting them. (laughs) So, you know, all kinds of different robotics, all these different things that maybe don't normally get thought of in the long-term care environment, but could really be helpful. Instituting help with modernizing some of these buildings, which are older and improving their HVAC systems. And um, those are the kinds of things that I hope will come from all of this. 
Well, I think you've touched on a lot of things, and those make a big difference. Being both an adult and pediatric doctor, I can always tell when I walk into the pediatric wards by the color that's there and all the designs, and it's so uplifting compared to being in a lot of adult facilities. So sometimes it's those little things that just make a big difference, especially if it's a place that's going to be your home. It's true. Thank you so much for thinking about all of this. Yeah. Thank you, Natalie, for joining us today to discuss resilience in long-term care settings. Thank you for having me. I had a great time talking with you. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in for this episode on resilience in long-term care settings. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C dot O-R-G slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Netech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.